Hello, my name is Aviva Silverman, and I will be having a conversation with Eli Ehrlich for the New York City Trans Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It's July 11th, 2023, and it's being recorded in Chinatown. Hello. Hi. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Could you introduce yourself? Well, my name's Eli Ehrlich. I just turned 28 yesterday, and... I live in New York City. How's cancer season treating you? You know, it's been fun. It's been fun so far. I, um, I'm at a very big point in my life. I just signed my first couple book deals and I'm finishing grad school this year. Wow, do you want to talk about it? some of those pursuits? <laughs> sure. So I wear a lot of hats and I feel like there's a lot of need for it in our community. I've been really deeply involved in the trans movement since, God, about 2010 and have, um, I mean, it's really been a central part of my life ever since. Yeah, and so when you said it's been over the last decade, yeah, um, where where did you feel like what was the beginning of it how did you enter into it oh wow so that goes back a bit more than a decade so i first opened up about being trans when i was eight years old in 2003 and i oh absolutely so i was in the middle of nowhere in rural california in a mountain town of about 4800 people and I grew up outside of the town on a little mountain with maybe a few dozen, a few hundred people over the course of, I mean, plenty of square miles. So really the middle of nowhere in the center of a forest on a mountain in rural California, three hours from the nearest city. And who else is with you on this mountain? I lived with both my parents and my sister. And what was your relationship like with them? Complicated once I came out. I mean, God, I can only imagine the world if I was a um, straight white man, God forbid. And my parents are fairly progressive and they were actually very not accepting at first. It was 2003 and there wasn't really any literature on trans kids. There wasn't any sort of knowledge of our existence. And so when I opened up about it, it was, um, it was definitely difficult. I mean, my, nobody accepted me. Um, I thought it was the only person like this and completely isolated. My sister was a little more ambiguous, but she also moved out when I was about 10 years old in 2005 or so. So she wasn't really around either. I didn't actually know the word trans, I or bisexual for that, or queer for that matter. Um, I, just, I just knew that I was a girl, and as I described it, I liked boys and girls. And this, this sort of deviation from a norm is very difficult in rural communities. It was very isolating and 
even uh, compounded with the current isolation of already being in such a small community. How did you spend time as a kid? There was a big break before and after I opened up. I felt very pressured to conform to gender norms when I first transitioned, as so many of us do. I, when I was a younger kid in primary school before eight, um, I mean, I really liked action figures and um, trading card games and these more masculine things. I was a big fan of Hot Wheels, which was um, definitely a signifier of my time. <laughs> And afterwards, I mean, I was just repeatedly told, like, if I wanted to be a girl, in their phrasing, I had to express myself in a certain way. I couldn't play Pokemon anymore, which is funny because now it's like a very, um, it's a lot more feminized. And I had to enjoy certain things in certain ways, otherwise I was being inauthentic in some way. And so, I mean, I was eight. I didn't have the sort of critical thinking skills that we, um, I mean, we do today. And I thought that it was, it was required for me to act in a certain way, to be a straight woman, God forbid, to have to enjoy pink and dolls, etc., to actually be a girl. And that definitely led to some difficulties and self-doubt because I knew who I was, but other people certainly didn't. Mm. What else helped shape you as a child? I really do think that my transness was ultimately fundamental to who I was, but not because it was transness, because of how I was treated. I mean, I would stay inside during school days because other children wouldn't play with me or their parents told them to stay away from me, like I had some sort of contagious disease. Unfortunately, that's now becoming more common again today, but at the time and for the past few years, it was, I mean, it's really appalling. I definitely enjoyed being creative. I mean, my parents were both from cities and were pretty educated, while most of the other students um, had families who had never graduated college or um, didn't have any sort of educational background. And so I had this sort of inherent difference that I felt from the other students. It was... It was very interesting also being in a rural community because my transness was, it wasn't considered part of it, if that makes sense. It wasn't considered something that could exist in those spaces. It was, I mean, I was told to go back to the city, go back to where I came from. And like, I, I was born there and grew up there. So it was... Um, it was definitely an interesting response that was confusing as a kid. Mm. Was there um, any sort of like spiritual or religious background to your family life? My family wasn't religious at all. Um, I would say that they're a bit agnostic. 
at least as far as my immediate family goes. Um, my dad's side of the family is Jewish. My mom is, is waspy. And I went to Hebrew school for three years, but that's about it. Mm-hmm. And did um, you were saying there was a difference in your class background between your family and your community? Yeah, it was very complicated. I mean, my um, my parents were middle class. Like my mom was still paying off uh, medical school loans. But um, even then, like the average income in the town was sixteen thousand dollars, and most people were living in pretty destitute poverty. I mean, many of my classmates um, like lived in shacks or camps, and like even being housed was a very big privilege there. And did, were you aware of that as a child? Your your differences. I think that there was some awareness to it as a child. I mean, my um, both my parents also grew up very low income, and so they um, they always emphasize like how lucky I am to have um, some of the like basic necessities. I mean, even then, like, God, the first few years that I lived there, um, the first few li- years that I lived. Um, for where I mostly grew up, um, that I moved to when I was seven, like there were blackouts every week. We ran out of water one summer. Um, we had dial up speed internet until like 2016, 2017, um, just because it was so rural, like we weren't really on a standard electricity or water grid. And unfortunately those issues are still really common in rural communities that it's just not talked about enough. Um, did you have any models or friends during that time in your childhood? Nope. I genuinely thought it was the only person like this, um, until I was probably a preteen. Like, I had heard of, um, I, I had heard of quote-unquote sex changes. Like, I knew that was a possibility for some people, but everyone told me it was just for people in this city, that it wasn't an opportunity or something that I could be in, and that I was just confused or was just a gay man, and only one of those things was correct. <laughs> um, and when you... When was the first time you um, thought about living elsewhere or going elsewhere? It's interesting where I was from, and I'm not sure how common this is in other rural communities, but growing up, we called cities the real world, which I always find so fascinating. Like, the country is the space of stillness and this hollowed out mass that's separate from time or any sort of progression, while the cities are the real world and they move on as time moves on, but cities tend to, or excuse me, the country tends to stay in this semi-mythological past that we are, we are constantly changing, but, um, we don't believe we are. So my town was, um, I mean, I, I believe it was founded in the mid to late 1800s, and it really stuck around there. I mean, you can see people um, who don't have cars to just ride around on horses, and um, the, I mean, the main industry is agriculture, so it was still very much in that sort of rural, somewhat conservative farming mentality. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so that helps answer where you're coming from, but what, when did you feel like you wanted to leave, or when did you feel like this wasn't like a viable option anymore? Since I was born. <laughs> I've always been very interested in education, and I just ultimately want to find strategic ways to maximize the sort of good that I can do in the world. And I realize that's not necessarily going to be in the country or in this very isolated area. Yeah. And so I I mean, as long as I can remember, I wanted to get the hell out. <laughs> and so from there, where did you go? After I graduated high school, I went to Pitzer College in Claremont, outside of Los Angeles. And it was definitely a bigger transition than I was prepared for. I mean, I had spent plenty of time outside of outside of this rural area that I grew up in. But at the same time, there was still this minor culture shock of actively living in this city. I mean, so many people there at this like very selective liberal arts college were um, all from the same high school and had a certain educational background that I just, I didn't and wouldn't be possible for me where I lived. I mean, only two of my classmates went to college out of a large class size of 15. And it was, it was very different seeing other people who families and community had expectations of them to attend college to reach a certain degree within this capitalist paradigm of success and to continue on to different locations. Mm. And what did you choose to study while you were at college? Same thing I'm in grad school for, gender studies. I was initially actually pretty skeptical of gender studies. I I didn't entirely understand that this is ultimately just another branch of um, philosophy and um, politics, history, sociology, and the combination thereof. I didn't realize that there would be so much to learn. I thought these were things that I could ultimately do on my own, but... Um, Pure academic and faculty feedback really made a big difference in my life. And I realized that I could also help others develop these critical thinking skills that unfortunately were not taught as often as we should be anymore. Mm. And what kinds of um, writers or thinkers like influenced you in college? I think the biggest ones follow a certain line of um, trans feminism, critical race theory, and um, political theory. I mean, reading Dean Spade's book, Normal Life, really changed what I thought was possible as an academic. I had, at that point, been involved in activism for several years and had a certain I almost want to say anti-intellectual bent on what academics could do, that it was this very hollow profession that ultimately couldn't create the sort of influence that could positively change a large number of people in a fast period of time. But reading Dean Spade's Normal Life and um, Eric Stanley and Matt Smith's Captive Genders, really, it really changed that. 
hearing from other trans activists who were also working as academics had a huge impact on me. Um, I mean, I think part of that was also realizing that some of my own community work could use some adjustments so they could be more skeptical of what large queer and trans organizations were pushing helped me realize that there was a lot more to learn and there always is. Mm. And did you connect to other people on campus or in the school that felt like they had an, an aligned mission? There were plenty of other people in the school who also were interested in trans activism. Surprisingly at the time, for a college of about 1,100 people that was also part of a university system of 6,000, there were fewer than five trans women on campus. And there were maybe, maybe 30 trans mask people, so very disproportionately small. But I was able to find a few queer and trans students that I did work with, and um, I was fortunate to have at least a little bit of community there that I love to work with. And what else did your social life look like? I've always really enjoyed minimizing my social life, to be honest. I've I've been very committed to spending as much time as possible um, doing work that I think I might be well equipped for. There is a question mark in there. Um, I don't think that others should be forced to um, do unpaid work, but I wasn't ever paid for my activism. And um, I mean, like, frankly, I do come from this very privileged background. My parents were able to cover my college, and so I wanted to spend that extra time um, doing the most work possible for the community, whether that be um, whether that be grant writing, organizing, hosting workshops, driving people around, or doing a fundraiser for someone. Um, I realized at a fairly young age that's what I want to commit my life to. So from college, where did you go next? I went to, well, after I graduated, I graduated college a little early and then spent about 10 months in Los Angeles. Um, I lived near East LA and kind of just goofed around for the next few months, like seeing friends, traveling, doing um, work for trans student educational resources, which I'm sure we'll get a lot more into very shortly. And I really wanted to spend that time preparing for grad school, so I read, I read as much as I could. Um, when I was done with grad applications, I actually only ended up applying to three places, and um, got into UC Santa Cruz, where I ended up going. Um, do you want to get into the organization that you mentioned? Okay, so we're going to skip back a little bit. Oh, okay, sorry, um, yeah, I don't know the, the chronology. Oh, so for sure. To... Oh my god, you don't know my chronology? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. You're totally good. So, um, this might almost be better to splice in earlier. Um... So when I was 15, I started to get more involved in the community. And I frankly didn't want what happened to me at my elementary and middle school to happen to anyone else. 
I mean, some of the treatment I was put through there was pretty horrendous. I like I had kids literally lining up to kick me into the crotch to quote unquote check my sex and um, teachers that would make fun of me in front of the classroom um, because of my gender. This was, I mean, really just the tip of the iceberg. So I realized that there would be other trans students in in these institutions, no matter how small they are. And I started getting involved in some little policy work and started changing school district policies at my, um, at my K-3 school district and then also my 612 school district. Um, and then I went out from there and started working with other school districts to... And how old were you at that time? A 15. And when you say you began to change policies, how, what were the steps towards that? It was adapting model policies to fit the school district's um, information. Um, the Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network, um, which is now called GLSEN, because um, their name was a little, a little exclusive. <laughs> they had a model policy, and so I would work with school board members to um, adapt the policy, propose it to their school boards, and then passed in their school districts. And I mean, thankfully, those are still used in dozens of schools today. And what are some of the policies? They generally involve um, the typical things you'll see on um, inclusivity policies. So um, name changes in school systems, um, restroom usage based on um, whatever the students feel like, calling students by the name, the correct name and pronouns, trainings for teachers, um, um, just general like non-discrimination policies. I grew a bit more skeptical of them over time, but I think ultimately my... Um, Could you name some of your skeptic- skepticism? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so I spent those, um, I spent those like three years from 15 till about 18, um, working on these policies. And then I started reading more books like, um, Dean Spade's Normal Life and, um, like critical resistance anthologies and, um, Insight Women of Color Against Violence. And a lot of their discussions are about how policies typically don't go followed. They um, tend not to redistribute resources to the trans community itself. And they act in these punitive ways that ultimately just like, let's say you have a teacher that won't respect a trans student, they might be fired and then they'll just pick up work somewhere else. And that ultimately doesn't solve the problem of, um, of this systemic trans antagonism that's happening. It just really individualizes um, more, more harm or isolation against perpetrators. And so I do think that some of these policies fall within that. I also think that there, there is a use to them. Like I was... I mean, I was banned from using the restroom for six years of my schooling. And then um, eventually in high school, I was able to use the um, gender neutral restroom, which the um, basically their excuse was I couldn't use a woman's restroom because it made the girls in my class feel. I couldn't use the, the girls restroom at my high school because it, according to the staff, made my um, my classmates feel uncomfortable. Um, I had never actually encountered them there at that point. They just didn't like trans people. 
And at the time, did you have any ways to feel like relief or how did you deal with the emotional? I did have some internet access, especially at school. That definitely helped. Even at dial-up speed internet. Actually, we had um, more than dial-up. It was satellite internet because we were too rural to have um, internet going through phone lines. And so even just that little bit was was helpful. I could refresh a web for and wait five minutes and see, um, like maybe see responses. I found social networks of other trans people from other places. And I realized that plenty of trans folks were going through the same thing that I was. And I think that's really what inspired me to get involved that no trans student should have to worry about their trans status. In fact, just the opposite. Trans students should be celebrated for their transness. We should be holding, frankly, more coming out parties, more trans celebrations, and having more trans history in schools. I I saw how common this was. And so when I was 15, I also became interested in starting a new project because I realized that there actually weren't any national organizations led by trans youth and there weren't any focused on trans students. And so I had met another trans girl, also my age, online, Alex, and we talked about coming up with this project together that eventually became Trans Student Educational Resources. So we spent a few months gathering together resource lists. Like, I remember we had the longest list of trans conferences, the longest list of um, LGBTQ plus friendly camps and different original policies on our website. And we eventually launched shortly after I turned 16. And that became TSER or Trans Student Educational Resources, which really ended up shaping my life. And how is it active today? So TSER hosts a variety of programs still. I am now quote-unquote retired. We set the age cap at um, 27 and under. Um, having turned 28 yesterday actually is... Um, I mean, I feel so old. I know technically I'm not, but I still do. <laughs> um so everyone involved was age 13 to 27 and it worked on different programs ranging from helping policies at school to scholarships fellowships um helping organize conferences and events hosting workshops working with media and there's there's a lot of ground to cover because frankly there wasn't much infrastructure for trans youth at the time when it launched in 2011 there were very few other trans organizations and thankfully, within a couple of years, we ended up becoming one of the largest trans organizations in the country. It was, it was definitely inspiring to work at. And I mean, even at that point, when it became larger, when I was around 18, I, I started to feel kind of old because there were truly amazing 13, 14 year olds who were making a huge splash within the organization beyond. And what issues did you run into in having to learn this like newly formed model and dealing with a lot of kids that don't have other forms of contact? And Absolutely. I, I really wish there was a guidebook for it. I think when it started, I mean, like I was 16, it was fairly hierarchical. Um, I became the director. Alex became the program manager. And 
it, I think, ultimately came down to becoming more horizontal over time, realizing that these more vertical models of activism aren't very sustainable. A book like Dean Spade's Mutual Aid would have been so helpful at the time, just because it would have helped me know more about organizing in ways that are more sustainable long-term and actively working at the root causes rather than remedying some of their symptoms. I think that Dean Spade's book, Mutual Aid, was really the, I mean, it's really one of the first ones I've ever ran into that's just like, it is a simple, accessible checklist that you can um, help run organizations, groups, collectives through. Um, I would say that normal life, captive genders, and um, the revolution will not be funded have been uh, really influential on TSER and ultimately how the model has developed over time. And so at first it was um, more hierarchical where I was running things, people felt more like they were working for me, which I don't really find ethical at this point, but again, I was 16 and I had a lot to learn. Um, and this ultimately leads to more surface level critique. So we were talking about policies earlier. So policies may address something like discrimination and they may make it illegal or against the policy that comes with punishments. But Ultimately, that doesn't help get at the roots of these issues. It doesn't question the, um, I mean, what we're taught in schools. It doesn't question how we're taught these um, systemic forms of prejudice. And it also doesn't really work at the roots of our alienation from our work in other communities. I mean, ultimately, and especially what we're seeing now, we witness these, um, I mean, these capitalists, these millionaires and billionaires that are using trans people as wedge issues, especially in the Republican Party, to um, divide and conquer, frankly. It's a term that they use. And they're using trans people and demonizing us to blame us for issues like job loss or feeling feeling um, uh, alienated from our work or our bosses or not being, say, promoted or given access to a college or other institution rather than questioning these models of um, hierarchical business and um, capitalism itself. There's also the... Um, I mean, an issue that Dean specifically is very focused on is um, um, the reliance on the government to provide us with resources, too, rather than us providing each other with resources, or government or business, for that matter. Um, that ultimately leads to increased reliance on the capitalist system itself. And so when we started, we were focused on things like... Um, 
um, like media representation or language used in media, which I do think is still important, but we didn't very we didn't really focus on questioning um, who are these six corporations that own media that allow um, allow Dave Chappelle or these anti-trans pundits to go on. Um, to have their specials on Netflix or go on Amazon Prime and spew whatever nonsense they want to. And this reliance on people over profit or capital over community. Mm. And what's your personal connection to media now? Uh, Complicated, that's for sure. I I do work on media and media quite a bit. Um, I... um, like, I will go on TV and be that trans talking head, which I have mixed feelings about, but I'll typically do it. And I... Um, How did that start? <laughs> I think I started getting more involved with media when I was 16 or so. I became sort of a figurehead for AB 1266 in California, which is the School Success and Opportunity Act. One of those very generic names that tells you nothing about the bill. It gave access to programs facilities for trans students aligning with one gender. A very basic thing that was somehow controversial at the time. This was, I want to say back in 2011? There was a question mark there. <laughs> it, was, um, it was definitely interesting, and I realize I do like working with media. I think it's... It's fun to push the edge and boundaries of what can be said and how much can be questioned in our politics. Again, this also ties back into teaching too and what I really enjoy doing with um, helping people, especially young people and students, develop these critical thinking skills that are increasingly difficult to find in our society. How did you feel like the first time you were invited to be a talking head on these subjects? I was nervous. I was very nervous. I mean, I was 16 and had seen plenty of trans talking heads, had been fed the script from these organizations and had my own experience to talk about. At the same time, I'm always second guessing myself and I still am to today. And so was always scared about messing up, saying the wrong thing, making our community look bad. And over time, I realized that everyone has these worries. And it's ultimately more important to share our stories as trans people, talking about especially trans narratives that aren't as often heard. Um, When it came to me, I mean, like talking about rural trans experience in California, typically think of California as the Bay Area or Los Angeles, but not the um, like 80% of the the state that is actually rural. So a lot of it came down to speaking of these, um, speaking of these experiences of violence, but also speaking about trans youth as agents in our own lives. And I think that's very important now where we're entering this era of increasing acceptance, but also increasing backlash. And um, at the time, it was very important to emphasize that, like, 
I was trans just because, couldn't really help it. And now it's, I'm trans just because, and I wasn't influenced by anyone. I didn't have any sort of parental support, and I have to continuously emphasize, like, how demonized I was for it, because otherwise um, people like to claim that trans kids are somehow coerced into it, when actually the opposite is true. And what gives you support when you're facing these like difficult conversations or interactions with people that perhaps are saying pretty like violent things to you? That's a great question. Growing up where I did, I found out that I need to support myself. And no matter what people say to me online, it's ultimately inconsequential. I mean, I really had nobody for the first four or five years of being trans. I didn't have any sort of community. I hadn't um, really met any other trans people. I was completely alone. My parents didn't support me. I didn't have any friends for multiple years there because of the stigma of even talking to a trans person. I was definitely feeling socially outcasted at that point. And if anything, that drove me a bit more. It wasn't enough to just move to a city and make friends. I also had to really get the most out of life, not just for myself, but also for all of the people who wanted to make it out of my hometown but didn't. And so part of that was building these community groups and finding support from other queer and trans people. Also, learning from others' experiences, you had such vastly different lives from my own. I was wondering if you wanted to say anything more about school. And then I went to other school. Oh, you went to another <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I went to UC Santa Cruz. Um, so after leaving Los Angeles in 2017, I moved up to the Bay Area in Santa Cruz. And I mean, honestly, I wanted to go to UC Santa Cruz. I was very happy with that. I didn't want to live in Santa Cruz. <laughs> and before the pandemic, nothing was, I mean, there were almost no grad schools with remote programs. So I went into the Feminist Studies and History of Consciousness Department at UC Santa Cruz. It was, it was a lot of fun for the first year or so. I mean, I, I always really enjoyed classes. My classes were always um, my favorite part of it. Meeting other students with similar interests and who were also very interested in learning. So... That was great. Santa Cruz, not so much. It was very isolating for me. I just moved out of the second largest city in the country, and I was ready to live in another one. I considered moving up to Oakland or somewhere around there, but a, a longer than hour commute is a lot. It's definitely difficult. So I lived on the west side of Santa Cruz for about a year and a half while finishing my coursework. And then I got a, an onslaught of harassment. Um, long story short, I published like a mildly negative article on our, I was also working as a journalist at the time. Um, so I was writing for um, Into Teen Vogue and a few other publications. And I like 
I wrote a mildly negative article about Ariana Grande's thank you next video. Um, oh, just like, it, it wasn't a good article. I just shoved it out, got like, they paid me well. And so I just wanted to put a few out there. There were like some weird, like slightly homophobic moments in it. She was kind of in blackface. I think this is pretty widely accepted now. But it was 2018, so at the time, this was such an outrageous thing to say. So it got completely dogpiled. And then um, one of her fans, like, posted online that um, uh, I think that I assaulted them. Um, I didn't know this person. And, um, and then, like, rumor mill started. Um, someone, like claims that there was a Title IX allegation against me at UC Santa Cruz. Thank God there wasn't, so the students could just, like, contact them. But then I started getting this, like, uptick in harassment, not just from students there, but from, like, all over. And this was probably the most I had ever been harassed at that point. Um, well, aside from my hometown. And it just being so widespread, I um, found a way to kind of get around the limitations on... Um, how long I had to live in Santa Cruz and so I was able to move out to New York where most of my community and friends had already been living for however long. At that point I was traveling a lot around a lot to like give workshops and speeches and so I was able to already come to a place where my best friends lived and I had a community. I I was definitely getting a lot of death threats in California, and... How did you feel about that? I mean, nothing will ever amount to my hometown. Like, the... Like, no matter how severe the death threats, like, people were not pulling knives and guns out on me. Um, there were a group of skinheads in my school who I had to see every day who would um, scream boy at me, spit on me, and then um, threaten to stab me after school. Like, that's just not happening. And um, if it is, it's over the internet. So not really as bad. The threat of violence is certainly there, but it's not directly physically in front of me. Right. So there was a part of you that could just kind of defer it as being... Yeah. Exact, like yeah. Just, yeah. I mean, someone did cut my brake lines um, while I was in Santa Cruz, but, well, they tried to cut my brake lines to cut the headlight lines. Um, so joke's on them. <laughs> yeah. okay. So the best I can do is laugh it off and enjoy it for the future. Gentrification, as you know, killed the Bay Area and still has a bit of a stranglehold on Los Angeles. And people were moving out to New York where it was starting to become less expensive than parts of California, which is historically pretty wild considering New York is one of the most expensive cities in the world. And... Um, a few of my friends, some of them from New York, some of them from different areas around the country, moved out here. And I realized this was a place where I could be um, a bit safer, have a strong friend group that I already had, meet more people, and ultimately feel happier at, which I do to this day. The... The anonymity of New York has been, has treated me very well. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, um, 
I, I think there's always this complication of people who are moving on, like, where I do have to grapple with gentrification. I, um, I ended up moving to Crown Heights in a very Jewish area, which, I mean, being someone who's Jewish, I am not that type of Jew. Like, I haven't lived um, in or near a Hasidic community before, so it was a it was a big change. I went to some seders, but ultimately didn't engage too much and was still finishing my master's degree and qualifying exams at UC Santa Cruz. I ended up reading about a hundred books in six months during that period to um, uh, to finish my qualifying exams, which was more than I think I had read in like the past two years. <laughs> it was very intensive, but also a lot of fun. And I enjoyed the challenge, but those few months were there were definitely some difficulties. And so I finished my qualifying exams that November, and two months later, the pandemic hit. So I had about two months without um, having the to be in the most intense part of grad school and the pandemic beginning to actually like screw around and um, make more friends. Wow. And so, okay, so you went to school there and then you're going to school here as well? <clears throat> Um, I, I was studying remotely. Oh, got you. Okay. So I'd finished my coursework in May, in May 2017, and, oh no, May 2019, and then moved here shortly after. Okay. And what were some of my ideas of New York before you came here? So before I moved here, I was coming out anywhere from three to seven times a year um, for the past five years or so. Okay. And I think I had a pretty good idea of what it was like. My perception hasn't really changed. I've definitely learned how to navigate it a little bit better, as everyone does after moving here, um, if they weren't born in the city. And ultimately, I really enjoyed the fast pace, the enormous amount of people, and of course, the queer community. What are some of the harder things about living in the city? There's a certain isolation that comes with living here. The, I mean, we all blame, we all blame Robert Moses, and I think we should because he has absolutely segregated the city even decades after his death. It's, I mean, part of the reason for living in the Lower East Side right now is like living between my friends who can afford to live in Bushwick, in Harlem, in South Brooklyn, and in Eastern New Jersey. So I like, I don't have many friends around me. I got very lucky getting a pandemic deal and now I'm kind of stuck here away from everyone, but in the center of everyone. Yeah, people like to come here. Exactly. Um, and I'm lazy, so it works great. Right. <laughs> um, I love how you say you're lazy after um, talking about all these initiatives since you were, you know. <laughs> <laughs> there's always more to do. So uh, there's this... There's this isolation that happens that I do hear from a lot of people who live in the city. And I'm 
I'm very happy and lucky to live where I do. I hope to spend the rest of my life here. But there certainly are some difficulties. I mean, also just the obvious like financial burden of living in New York is absurd, especially with inflation after the pandemic. It's definitely difficult. Um, what kinds of things do you do to pay your bills? I put on a lot of hats. Some of them paid, some of them not paid. I, during the pandemic, well, during the pandemic, I was living with an ex and we had to split the bill, but they were also a chef. And um, so they couldn't pay anymore when the pandemic hit. They were immediately laid off. Nobody was getting unemployment at that point. And so, I started just selling things online. I started art dealing. Um, I took up more modeling jobs. Art dealing, I, you say? How it, did you enter that one? Um, through um, through online auctions. Um, the I mean, art dealing is it's fake. Like none of these have an actual like none of no painting has an actual value to it. It's entirely speculative. Um, I would say it's a step up from crypto, but a step down from hiding gold underneath your bed. And I found that it was something you could do without much, like, investment money. So that certainly helped pay the bills for a few months. Um, most of it, thankfully, I now pay through speaking and modeling. And then I just got my first couple book contracts this week. So This week? Yeah. Wow, congratulations. Thanks. Can you tell us what the deals are? Yeah, absolutely. So I am working on... Right now, four books and a dissertation, um, one of which is complete. <laughs> and so the book deals who just came in, um, two of them are essentially for the same book, an adult version and a young adult version on underreported trans history. And what I'm trying to do is rewrite the entire timeline of trans history. I went to primary sources that have been recently digitized, uploaded, and cataloged. And have found. Can you name what some of those sources are for us? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm looking at different archives, like um, court records, newspapers, um, genealogy records that might have not existed ten years ago, and I'm finding figures who say, I mean, one example is a formerly enslaved black trans woman who got approval from the U.S. government to live as a woman in the 1860s. And this is a, I mean, this is about 80 years before what's widely accepted as the first court case allowing um, a trans person to live as their gender. Uh, what is her name? Her name was reported in papers as Sally Tom. It's a little unclear if she has, if she had a last name. I know where she lived, what her, when she was born, but I'm still in the writing process. I'm mm -hmm. maybe about three quarters of the way done with the book. So I'm waiting to hear back from some um, Freedmen's Bureau archives that have her records in them that actually go over this court case that um, would have allowed her to live as a woman. Yeah, and there's, there's so many of these cases that basically what we consider to be the first trans person to do something, they're not the first trans person. We just, we will always find someone before them. And this book is focused on 1850 and 1950. I'm sure there's earlier cases. Um, but right now, this is what we have. And I think this really all started when someone asked me 
who the first trans child to medically transition was. And I realized we, we actually don't have that information. We don't know who it was. Medical records are sealed, of course. And so I just kept on going further and further back. And you'll hear people sometimes say it's 1950s, it's 1970s, but... I found this um, case looking in the British newspaper archive of Mark and David Farrow, who transitioned around 11 and 13 years old, um, two trans boys in rural United Kingdom, a couple hours outside of London. And they medically transitioned around 13 to 15 in the 1930s. And not only that, they actually had newspapers reporting on them, including the Daily Mirror and Daily Mail, which are notoriously anti-trans now, calling them brave and courageous and absolutely celebrating what they've had to go through to transition. Mm. Why is writing this timeline important to you? I think it's crucial right now to talk about the history of trans people that we don't discuss as often to rewrite this timeline because we still have trans activists that are saying like trans children didn't exist until the 50s or the 70s when that's simply not the case and of course recently just this year we had donald trump saying that trans kids didn't exist until 2015 which i mean i was 2003 so maybe i was just imagining it for those 12 years (laughs) and so what are the other book deals that you're working on so I'm also producing a young adult version of that book for um, maybe late elementary, middle and high schoolers. And then I'm also writing a book on trans members of far right groups, which has been fascinating to say the least. I've been very interested in this subject for so long just because it seems so counterintuitive. but. There are quite a few, and only, I mean, over time, there's only going to be a growing number. Are they on the DL, or are they... There's a mix. There's some of them who have, I mean, who are out neo-Nazis, and there's other ones who might be a DL eugenicists who don't want to speak about it with the, pu- um, with the How public. How does that reconciled in the, in the party if they're out? Well, that's exactly the question. That is what I'm very interested in. We're looking at a 2025 release for this book through University of Chicago Press. And what I'm asking basically is what leads them to these beliefs? And I think we're going to be seeing more of this over the next years. I mean, right now, the Proud Boys, for example, have a black leader. The, um, the, presently most notorious um book banning group moms for liberty it's all it's all women and so what the book is essentially asking is why are these members of oppressed groups joining their oppressors and people have asked this question before but ultimately nobody's asked about trans people and nobody has really expanded to the general broader question in this contemporary context and so i'm trying to fill in these gaps of rationales as to why they join these groups and also what we can do to prevent others from joining them so we're reaching this monumental moment in global politics where the 
far-right groups, the Republicans in the U.S., the Tories in the U.K., white supremacists all over the world are realizing that they have to become more inclusive than ever. They realize that in a globalizing society, they have to let go of certain identity politics, certain less politicized identities as their objects of attack, and instead incorporate the wealthy white trans woman who might want to join Ron DeSantis in his crusade against um, trans kids, or the wealthy black men who might want to join the Republican Party. And further have them become part of their agendas because otherwise you're going to fade into into um, obscurity because most people are people of color there is an increasing number of queer and trans people and so if they don't they're going to lose all their political power granted once again the political power they're going to throw everyone else under the bus and um and not actually care about them but ultimately their messages are getting across to a select few now of course it would be offhand to say that most trans people have these politics or that most trans people subscribe to any sort of um white supremacist or even conservative ideology but there are certainly a growing number How do you in your own work deal with maybe people that you work with, organizations, um, when there are kind of like interpersonal struggles around cancellation, even within the same sort of like movement of people? Oh, absolutely. Um, So I think this is a really good question because we've been going through this since the 50s, 60s, and to a lesser degree even before then. I study the politics of social movements, and this has always been an issue. There's always been some some concept of cancellation. It used to be called call-out culture, and it's had many other names over many other iterations. And of course, this has happened to me, it's happened to basically everyone that I know at one point or another. There will be some disagreement, and then... Once any sort of queer or trans person reaches a degree of notoriety, they will have someone contesting that notoriety. Even sometimes when they're not notable, they'll still have that attack. And it's become, I mean, it's become complicated. I've experienced that a lot recently with my suggestion that people redistribute their unused hormones. And there's been a lot of pushback to it. Um, whether for my own safety, whether for um, people thinking this is dangerous by some means or that it's too risky and um, maybe I'm putting other people at risk, which obviously isn't the case. I think that it's complicated. I think over the years I did used to engage in these sort of individualized attacks on people, especially when it was in college, I was very passionate and I really... Um, I, I really thought this was the way to um, enact change when in reality I was casting out individual members from groups as like quote-unquote bad people or unworthy of rehabilitation and over time um, with my own various cancellations I've definitely learned that 
it's incredibly important to incorporate those people who have um, who have done harm over time. I mean, when you say incorporate, what do you mean? I mean rehabilitation. I mean working on their politics and their actions. I mean, like there are multiple very well-known trans activists who I've been sexually assaulted by, who I've been harassed by, who I've heard use slurs, who I've heard um, um, have like abused their partners. And I think it's very important that we discuss with them directly whatever sort of harm they may or may not have done. Yeah, so it's it's complicated, um, and at the same time, I mean we we have very complicated figures in our community too. Like, what what do we do with the Caitlyn Jenners? <laughs> do you have any experiences with mental health or mental illness? Just as like sort of a calling in of yeah, how we kind of navigate all these different kinds of yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like every other trans person, like I've been very depressed when I wasn't, um, when I wasn't accepted. And I think that it did take away like key moments of childhood development when I was in elementary and middle school, where I felt like it was very hard to engage socially because it was just so depressed and so anxious about um, how others would perceive me, how I would navigate the world if I was forced to go through this wrong puberty. And I think that, that those were some of the most difficult difficult issues that affected me. I find it very funny that now today we're running into this uh, moral panic around depressed, anxious, or autistic trans people who may... Um, who might come out as trans and blaming that on these other mental health issues when in reality some of them can be caused by all the harassment that um that we face as trans people yeah it's um it's very frustrating to see that rhetoric um there's a few authors like Jasper Puar who I really appreciate um, who talk about the separation of trans identity and mental health issues as one that is not necessarily wholly um, wholly beneficial to us. That is separating out trans issues from mental health issues in such a way that um, says that mental health issues are this innate biological thing that's in no way socially constructed and um or transnesses and um we're entirely separate when in reality um there were explicit um there were explicit debates around including um transness or gender identity disorder in say the americans with disabilities act and um we actually could have benefited from that immensely even if being trans isn't really a disability but then we have to question like who constructs disabilities who constructs mental health issues and um how those come into play as political rather than biological objects yeah totally and you also said that you are doing some oral history work yeah yeah so um my dissertation focuses on this concept of disrespectability politics and I'm following four different groups that are engaging these politics, are rejecting moralistic appeals to authority in favor of undermining power itself. And so I'm interviewing different activists who are 
say, engaging in unruly protests that other activists might say are making the trans community look bad. Other people you can name that we would know or be interested to learn about? Uh, there's, a, there's a few. So I really appreciate Janicette Gutierrez's work in 2015. Um, she's a Los Angeles-based trans migrant activist. She interrupted Obama during the White House Pride reception. And she was actually booed by the other um, audience members while she was calling for Obama to release all the LGBTQ plus um, detainees who were facing incredible mistreatment, abuse, isolation, and even death in detention while Obama was hosting this swanky soiree. Now, compared to what what Trump did, it was a very different scenario, but I think what she did was ultimately very beneficial to her community in moving us to a more intersectional and transversal model of activism that didn't that doesn't just acknowledge that maybe we've gained some rights under a certain president, but also takes into account who is benefiting from this president's regime when Obama has deported more than even Trump did. Yeah. Is there anyone else that feels um, important today? <laughs> well, in the context of today's anti-trans pseudo-feminist movement, um, there was an art gallery by the Degenderettes in the San Francisco Public Library that, in their 140-year history, was the first censored exhibit. And it was all because of this shirt that read, I Punch Turfs. So I have a whole chapter about this exhibit and the shirt that I, I mean, I absolutely adore them. I think they're all, like the Gigenderettes were all hilarious and they had to remove the shirt because there were impending protests by Andrew trans feminists who were largely like lesser known at the time in 2017 when this event was happening. And this rhetoric of self-defense just became the front and center of Bay Area trans politics for a few years because it helps us question at what point does rhetoric become violence and at what point do popular discourses render certain certain objects or certain rhetoric as violent versus pre-violent and apparently saying that trans people don't exist and or are, um, are predators is fine. But once you say, I punch turfs who are spreading this rhetoric, then apparently that's violent somehow. Right. Yeah. So I, I think this, just this singular shirt is worthy of more consideration in how our community deals with our self-defense and our... Um, our place within current discourse, the place that kind of render, renders us as a violent community as a whole, while we're also, well, some of us are also so committed to nonviolence that we may be self-defeating. Yeah, that's interesting for you to say self-defense. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know it's a big um, question that's going on right now, too, with more white nationalists popping up in our current historical moment field sort of like violent ways they are doxing you know activists absolutely i mean i get death threats every single day and 
I, I have plenty of friends who keep on telling me to like get a gun, get a gun, and I, I think a lot of it is panic. Like there, there's certainly increasing violence, but ultimately, um, some self-defense does have to be preemptive because you have to plan it out beforehand. And there's such rare moments where we have the ways to implement self-defense for one another. But it does also happen. I think it's very important that we have ways of training one another in self-defense techniques. And I hope eventually one day we... Um, I mean, am I, am I allowed to talk about an insurrection here? Like... <laughs> Um, that we are able to uh, maybe create some better society. I mean, I've really been appreciating Amy O'Brien's um, book, Everything for Everyone, for that reason, where we are able to actively, where it does provide the space to actively imagine how a revolution comes to be. And what it looks like afterwards. Yeah. And where, what it looks like afterwards. Mm -hmm. I think that it, it genuinely is the best book since The Dispossessed that has described what this um, amazing communist anarchist society looks like. Mm. That's, yeah. <laughs> um, and wrapping up, I just wanted to ask some of these like um, broader questions. For sure. Um, one is, how do you feel most seen? I think what makes me the happiest is when other people can see this trans academic or this butch trans woman who is able to represent a possibility for them. I mean, there are so few trans women in academia. There's still fairly few trans women who are who feel comfortable enough resisting certain gender norms. And I think seeing others who feel comforted by this existence is it's comforting for me. Too. Mm. It helps me know that this is the right path and that even just existing can help other people because ultimately I, I want trans people to feel as comfortable as possible in their self-expression rather than, I mean, what I was, what I was faced with for over a decade being feeling kind of coerced and having long hair by the cis people around me who might not accept me as a woman otherwise and feeling like I couldn't succeed in academia or writing because I'm a trans person and it is harder to get a job or a book deal and I was wondering if you could talk to maybe trans youth that are in the south or in places that are having these these bills actively there is I'm sure you are in your work always talking to them but if you wanted to like leave them a message for this recording and don't let the law dictate how you live your life thank you <laughs> thank it was you so nice to talk to you yeah you too it was fun